Second Kings chapter 17 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men that are coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And uh, Sunday nights, our survey through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation cover some larger segments of scripture. And uh, and uh, you'll be uh, wanting to have a Bible in front of you to be able to follow along the most effectively as we finished in uh, uh, partway through chapter 17 last week. We left off in chapter uh, chapter 17, verse 23. And at that point in time, we remember that. Uh, the, we had studied the conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, by the Assyrians, and they went into captivity to the Assyrians. Should have never happened, didn't need to happen at all. God had given them promises if they just had obeyed him and walked with him, that uh, they'd have been fine through all the upheavals of the fallen world all around them, that he was going to, he's greater than all of that, and he would have blessed them. But they went into captivity just for one very simple reason, their disobedience uh, to the Lord. That was the, the main reason that they went into that captivity. It's interesting as we go through the Old Testament here to notice, and some of, uh, some of us can notice it almost to the place where uh, it it might seem a little bit tedious to us where the same lesson is being driven home over and over and over and over again, every which way that God can say it. And that is the importance of just simple obedience to his word. It makes us distinctive as a people in this world. It was intended to make the children of Israel distinctive in the ancient world. As they disobeyed God's word and became like the world around them, there was no means by which people could look and say there's an alternative to all of the other things that the people of the world worship. They couldn't look and say, well, there's all of this stuff, but then look what the children of Israel worship over here. As they, as they became disobedient, then there was no alternative to the darkness and the downward path that goes with following the gods of this world and walking in disobedience. And, and so they, they headed into that disobedience and that they should have been protected from the consequences of if they had only obeyed. And it's so important for us just to realize for our own individual lives how important obedience is to the Lord. We can hear this over and over and over again, and it just like it just it, it can stop connecting. The world that we live in today, and I, 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 I almost promised to God not to depress you tonight, but the world that we live in tonight is more dangerous than the world that the children of Israel and the northern kingdom of Israel lived in uh, almost 3,000 years ago. And so the importance, you can't make a decision for a nation or a state or a county or a city or the whole world, but we can make decisions for ourselves. And the promises that God gives us in the New Testament, these are not national promises that he gives. He doesn't make it to continents or to nations. These are promises that he makes to people, to individuals, that as we just obey his word, however crazy things get around us in this world, that he's going to be faithful to his word 
to keep us and to, and to bless us and to use us to glorify his name. And so the importance of that, of looking at this and, and, and having it be a continual search for any area of disobedience in my life, the, the, the highway or the pathway of holiness one of the prophets in the Old Testament said is that, that to walk this path of holiness, you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have a Ph.D. to walk on it. And the path is safe. And I like that. And so the importance of obedience. God takes his promises to us very seriously. He takes his role as heaven, a heavenly father in our lives very seriously, when Jesus calls himself our shepherd in the good shepherd, he takes that role seriously. God doesn't just like, hey, I'll throw a bunch of titles out and maybe one of these will stick and they'll get excited about it. He stands behind everything that he promises to us. The danger of it is to get on the wrong side of things through disobedience. And so that's what a nation did. And we have to protect ourselves individually from doing that. The reasons that they went into captivity by way of a very short recap, and, and the marks of a nation that's in the process of dying. Number one, we saw it was sin. They became addicted to sin and chose sin over righteousness as a nation. There was no fear of the true and the living God. And so the word of God, God's definitions of right and wrong, ah, oh, what does God know? He's just a big square. And, uh, and so we're smarter than him and all. So there's no fear or respect for God. They were conformed to the fallen, sin-filled world around them. And so they, you, th you jettison or throw off God's definitions of right and wrong. And then, boy, turn around and we look just like the world. They began to engage in secret sin. There was the increase of private wickedness within the nation. And then idolatry uh, began to uh, uh, fill the whole land, the worship of lust, the worship of money, the worship of power. And then when God sent prophets to warn them, they were unteachable and hard-hearted toward God's warnings. I don't know. How would you get the attention of our nation today uh, with the voice of God? I don't know. But people are so hard-hearted toward his warnings. But he has a way of uh, turning up the heat and uh, getting everybody's attention. Unfortunately, it's called the Great Tribulation. <laughs> but he can do it individually in people's lives as well. And then because they wouldn't heed his warnings, uh, there was the escalation of evil. And then ultimately, when evil escalates, it gives the promise of giving us freedom and we're free to sin and all of this stuff. But all sin brings us into bondage. So ultimately, they lost their freedom. They lost their power of self-determination and they went into bondage. And again, proving what the Old Testament teaches, and that is that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So now having been taken captive... Then the king of Assyria, verse 24, brought people from Babylon, uh, Kutha, uh, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvarim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. This was Assyria, Assyria, one of the 
world ruling empires of the ancient world. And their policy was as they would conquer the world is when they would conquer Israel, for example, as they just did here. They would depopulate. They would remove the Jews from the land, take them and settle them in another part of the Assyrian Empire, take other people from another part of the Assyrian Empire and bring them into Samaria or into Israel. And it kept all of the populations unsettled and less likely to rebel against Assyrian authority. So it was their means of crowd control and uh, nation control in doing that. And so they deported a, a significant portion of Israel's population to Assyria. They resettled Israel with people from five other nations that Israel had uh, likewise uh, conquered. They immediately run into some problems here. And so it was in the beginning of their dwelling there in Israel, these foreign populations, that they didn't fear the Lord. And so they brought in all their gods, all their idols, all this stuff. So they had no respect for God. And therefore, the Lord sent lions among them and uh, the lions killed some of them. So now you have a, a uh, uh, territory now that is uh, significantly lower population. Animal uh, lions were native to uh, Israel, and so they began to popu- uh, repopulate very, very strongly, and uh, began to. Uh, kill some of the people that were there. It wasn't just that they were, uh, you know, uh, breeding in a you know, greater fashion because of a lack of population. There was something supernatural about this and God allowing this, these lions to uh, bring judgment uh, upon these people as they came in with their idolatry. All through the Bible, we see places where God uh, sometimes uses wild animals as kind of agents of his judgment. And this was uh, a part of that. And so uh, he allows this to happen. And it isn't just God just doing something to do something. He's always trying to drive home a message with what he allows or what he does. One of the things that he's driving home to the Assyrians and to these five people groups that have come into Israel with all of their gods and all of their disrespect for the Lord is he was letting them know essentially that you have displaced my people from this land. But this land was never their land. This land is my land that you're coming into. And he was also communicating to them, you may have defeated my people. But you only defeated my people because of their disobedience. You have not defeated uh, the God of these people that you've just defeated. And so it was his, was his way of communicating to them in a way that they understood in the ancient world. You didn't have atheists in the ancient world. Everybody believed in God. They believed in something superior to themselves that that they worshipped. And so when this kind of thing happened, they would be immediately attribute it to the God of Israel, to the God of the Jews, what's going on here? God was communicating the fact that, yes, my people have been defeated, but don't mistake that as meaning that you have defeated their God. I am uh, alive and uh, well, and the land belongs to me. So they make a request in the light of this need, and they spoke to the king of Assyria, and they requested, saying, the nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, they don't know the rituals of the God of the land. And therefore, he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of Israel. And so uh, they come in and 
and basically say, we don't understand this God. Obviously, he's upset with all of us, but we don't know how to placate him. We don't know how to soothe him. And so could you send us somebody who knows this God a little bit to instruct us on how to get along with him? They have no interest in uh, getting rid of all of their idols and all of their false gods. They believed in all kinds of different things to be gods. And they just looked at Jehovah, or the God of the Bible, and said, well, we'll just make him one of the multitude that we already worship. We just got to find out. You know, they all, they're all a little touchy about this or that. And we got to find out what that this or that is that this Jehovah is touchy about that we're doing. And then we'll get along with him the way that we learn to get along with all of the other gods uh, in, in the world. So the request was made. Concerning this, and so the king of Assyria, he commanded, saying, send one of the priests uh, to them of whom you brought from there and let him go and dwell there and let him teach these people the rituals of the God of the land. And uh, this isn't a, a, a great move, but it's the best move he knows how to make because he's going to send back. One of the priests that led the northern kingdom of Israel in the worship of the golden calves back to instruct these people in the God of Israel. He doesn't know the God of Israel himself because he led the northern kingdom of Israel in, the, in idolatry for hundreds of years. He and others like him. And so they said, well, send one of those guys uh, back. So, you, you know, you talk about the blind leading the blind. That's exactly what's going to happen here. And then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and he dwelt in Bethel and he taught them how they should fear or respect the Lord. However, every nation of these five nations that came in, they continued to make gods of their own. Now, would you just circle that word make in your mind? If you can make your God, you've got a God that isn't worth worshiping or following. If, if I can make it, anything you can make, by virtue of you being able to make it, you're greater than what you can make. Who in the world wants to make their gods? I like to make brownies. I like to make this or that, but I have no interest in making my God. That would, if, he, if you can make it, he's, he's less than the maker. And I need a God that's bigger than me. So it's really sad here. They continue to make gods of their own. And they put them in the shrines and the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt. So they just filled the whole land with, with their idolatry. And the men of uh, Babylon made Sokoth, uh, Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made uh, Ashima. And the Avites made uh, Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Seraphites burned their children in the fire to Adramalik and Anamalik, the sons of Seraphim. And so this child sacrifice that was going on now in the land. And then interestingly, so they feared the Lord. And from every class they appointed for themselves priests uh, of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. And so here, here they are. They're just polytheists. They, they worship a multitude of gods. They just added uh, Jehovah now to the list here in addition to everything else. And it tells us in verse 33, they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations among them uh, 
to, uh, from among whom they were carried away. And so they feared the Lord, we're told, yet they worshipped their own gods. They showed what they considered to be a, uh, an appropriate respect toward uh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, but they remained heart loyal and mind loyal uh, to their idols. And so if they really feared the Lord, then they would have rejected all of these false gods and idols and they would have committed themselves to following and serving uh, the Lord with all of their heart. This verse 33 is an interesting verse and it really preaches very, very well. I won't do it tonight, but it's a great passage uh, and, and an important passage really in any time in human history because there's so many people that are like this kind of people. They have a great respect for the Lord. They don't doubt his existence. Uh, they don't doubt his power. They don't doubt his wisdom. They just aren't willing to stop worshiping all of the other idols in their life to give the God of the Bible the place that he is due in their lives. And so they won't give up the positions and the passions and, and uh, all of the power in order to, to, to do that. And so what these foreigners did in attempting to uh, mix the worship of the Lord with their own false religion is worse than if they had just said, well, we reject this Jehovah, we reject the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible, we want nothing to do with it, and we're just going to work. He is his thing, our gods are our, their thing over here, they are mutually exclusive, you can't get them to compromise and, and be joined together. That would have been a better thing for them to have done than to attempt in their own minds, and it only occurs in their own minds, that we're going to unify all of these gods uh, to Jehovah, and somehow this is going to please God. Because now what they've done, the worst thing that they've done, is they have made what God is, and His commandments, and His uniqueness in, in all of creation, they've uh, spoiled that in terms of people being able to look and say that God is different from all other gods. So this blending of the gods, um, that that did more harm than if they had just rejected Jehovah outright. Um, you take the average, you take the, the person, for instance, to make it more personal. You take the person who professes to have a great respect for God. They believe in his power. They believe in his wisdom. They know a little bit about him, just enough about him to be dangerous and even claim to be a Christian. And yet they worship all of these other idols that the culture worships. That person will do more damage to the reputation of God and do more damage to the health of the true body of Christ than if that person stood up and said, you know, I believe that this is the true and the living God over here, but don't look at my life at all. I'm not living for him. I'm living a life of complete idolatry. Don't think that I'm, I've wedded these, all of these, the God and all of these idols in, in my worship. It would be better if people looked at that person and understood that that person, you can't look at that person and come to any conclusion about the God of the Bible at all. So great damage is done by this 
kind of mixed multitude group here that tries to uh, compromise things by wedding the God of the Bible to everything else that the, that the world worships. And of course, it's an affront to God and because these kind of uh, alliances that they were making, they're always based on compromise. And God doesn't compromise with idols. He doesn't compromise the idolatry of this world. He won't share his glory with others, the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. And Isaiah was ministering at, uh, at this time in, uh, in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Lord spoke through Isaiah and said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And so they needed to choose between one or the other. They didn't. They got a compromising religious leader to come in and tell them that they could uh, worship all of their gods and the Lord as well. And in essence, as a result, they were violating both the first and the second of, of the Ten Commandments. So all of it was a violation of God's laws. And to this day, they continue, verse 34, practicing the former rituals. And they do not fear the Lord. That is to the time of the writing of this, uh, this uh, second Kings. And they do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or, or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them to sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And so God had spoken that to them from day one and made it clear. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods, but the Lord your God you shall hit the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all of your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals, and so these nations feared the Lord and had a respect for him, yet and we don't want to have a yet in our respect for the Lord, but they had it, yet they served other their carved images also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. Our God is always identified in our life, not by who we say we, you know, uh, worship in life. Always our God is identified by who we serve. What, what is it in life that snaps its finger, we jump up to attention, and then we obey that something? That is the God in our life. Now, one of the things that's important about this passage for us with kind of a New Testament application is it is here that we come to understand the origin of this group of people that are spoken of in the New Testament known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans uh, came into being at this point in, in human history, and they were essentially the intermarrying and interbreeding between these people that came from the five other uh, portions of the Assyrian Empire and 
uh, some of the Jews that had been left behind in Israel. And so they began to marry. They began to meld these religions together and all of this kind of stuff. And then ultimately, hundreds of years later, at the time of Jesus, this group of people have taken on a name, an identity that everyone knew them by. That is that they were uh, the Samaritans. And so in John chapter 4, when uh, Jesus began to speak to that woman in, in uh, Samaria, and she responded to him and said, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink uh, from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so um, what happened is, is uh, later on, is the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity to the Babylonians, uh, after 70 years, a group was released to come back into the land of, of, of Israel and to resettle into the land. They came back, and when they came back, all of these Samaritans were there with all of their false worship and all of their idols and claiming a relationship with Abraham and yet worshiping uh, in uh, on Mount Gerizim. They developed this whole religious system that they had developed, and they had a, no intention of leaving Israel. And so when these Jews came back, now thoroughly chastened from their disobedience to God, came back to Israel and wanted to walk with God according to the black and white and not one step to the left or one step to the right of obeying his word. I mean, they wanted to just let's do this right so we don't go into captivity again. They come back in and these Samaritans are here and they are not interested in worshiping the God of the Bible according to his law. And so a great division occurred between the Jews and the Samaritans, and they persecuted one another, despised one another, until by the time Jesus came, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, nor did the Samaritans have any dealings with the Jews. The fascinating thing that Jesus did when he came in, and he steps into like a 400 plus year history of hatred between these two groups, I mean the Hatfield and the McCoy's times, uh, 10,000. And I mean, a lot of bad blood between these two groups. And Jesus comes in and he knows that the worship of, uh, of the Samaritans is bogus. He knows it's all wrong. And uh, when she when he, uh, he he talks with a woman caught in adultery, he talks with her uh, about that. Uh, not the woman caught in adultery, the woman that had been married multiple times and talked with her at the well here in the, in the same passage. And so he corrects her related to that. But interestingly, Jesus um, made Samaritans the hero uh, heroes of a couple of his stories or his parables. And uh, when he was passing with the disciples through the area of Samaria and the Samaritans would not let Jesus and the disciples um, you know, kind of rent a room and stay in the city. James and John said, we don't have to put up with this. I mean, do you want us to call fire down from heaven the way that Elijah did? And, and they're going to take care of the Samaritans. And there was that kind of prejudice that they had in their heart toward them. And the Lord said, no, you don't know what spirit you're of. And he proceeded to, uh, in his ministry, talk with this woman uh, at the well. Not only does she get saved, but the whole village gets saved. And it really irked the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus had this kind of heart uh, toward the Samaritans. But Jesus was trying to model to his people both then and now that there's only two categories of people in the whole wide world, and that's saved and unsaved. That's all there is. 
So we got all, we got all these hyphens for the unsaved group and the saved group sometimes as well. But his point was, if they're not saved, God's got a message for them, and we have a responsibility to take that message to them, however long or bitter the history of animosity might be between the, the two groups of people. And so an important lesson, but this helps us to understand where these Samaritans had come from. And so, uh, chapter 18. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So we move to the southern kingdom of Judah here now. And his mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did, hold it, my heart, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Thank you, Lord according to all that his father David had done. So he has this very long reign of almost 30 years, and the summary of his life is that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Without qualification, he had done according to all that David had done with that kind of heart. Only three other kings were so described in in the southern kingdom of Judah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and also uh, Josiah. Again, as we mentioned last time, this is one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, Judah's history. And he was a very good son from a very, very wicked, wicked father. And and it's possible for that that to happen. We can make a choice to be great or to be uh, uh, an influence for the kingdom of God and the things of God no matter what our home background has been uh, or what our influences have been uh, in our life prior to God coming into our lives and becoming the influence. It is interesting because other parts of the Bible hint at the fact, in fact, more than hint at it, strongly point to the fact that Hezekiah, though he had a very evil father, he probably had a very godly mother. And we're told that his uh, 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 that her father, Zechariah, was a very good man. He was a very godly man. So he had a good and godly uh, grandfather in his life and probably the same as a mother. Um, there's a, uh, a car that's parked on a particular street that I pass on a fairly regular basis, and it's got a little bumper sticker uh, in the back. And the bumper sticker says this. It says, it's a mom's world. And I I assume that that's a takeoff on James Brown's song, uh, It's a Man's World. I can't be sure. But if it is a takeoff on it, uh, it's, it's not too far from the truth at all. Probably the single most influential relationship in all of life is the, an influence in all of life is the influence of a mother upon a child, uh, whether for good or for evil. But it is a very, very powerful influence. Uh, sometimes you get into the New Testament and it talks about the fact that um, women are not allowed to be uh, pastors of churches. And some people get upset about the fact that they, women do sometimes. That how come they can't have that position? And Paul goes on to speak, in, in essence, concerning the issue to women and saying that a woman's place 
of influence and significance in the world will never be diminished by virtue of the fact that she brings the next generation into the world. She's the single greatest influence upon the next generation. That's what the mother is. And I think this is a great encouragement to uh, any of you that are here tonight or listening to this anywhere where you're married to some terrible person. And I mean, you, you'd be respectful and all these things, but I mean, it's just the way that it can be a lot of times. Married to an evil man, a wicked man. The influence in that household and upon those children, those kind of things. And you wonder, oh boy, what, what will the kids be left with? Am I making a dent at all? And Hezekiah teaches us that the influence of the mom can be greater than all of that. And I want you to be encouraged by that. And sometimes it's the other way around, too, in terms of the husband and the wife as well. The funny thing, God has a way of, in his love for each of our souls and his desire to save each one of us. He has a way of getting through to us as we grow older and as we grow into adult life to make us look back on our childhood and to see it with a greater clarity sometimes than we ever saw it when we were in the middle of it. And to have tremendous respect for the parent who against all odds and against all kinds of, of in other influences in the home made a stand for God and worked as much as they could within their power to establish something of God in our lives. And I'll tell you, God never wastes it. And so this great, great encouragement, a godly mom is powerful, powerful stuff. And you be encouraged uh, by that. So in, as a characteristic of his doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, notice he removed the high places. Circle that word removed, at least in your mind. He broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wo wooden image. So this is a guy that comes in and he comes into to power. His father has absolutely filled the land with idolatry, uh, there's uh, idols all over the place, there's altars all over the place, on every hill there's a shrine, and he comes in, and in essence he looks at it, and he says, anything that violates the word of God, out it goes. Every idol is to be destroyed, every shrine is to be destroyed, every hilltop is to be returned to just its natural use, not even to be used to the worship of the Lord. That was to happen at, at the temple. And so he comes in and anything, anything that violated, any business, any uh, worship, anything that violated the word of God, he stepped in. And he cleaned house. <laughs> That's a fabulous thing. Now, that took faith for him to do. He's going to step on a lot of toes to do that. But his name is gold in God's book. His name is gold in the eyes of the Lord, where he made that stand. And then he trusted God to honor that stand that he was making to change an entire generation among God's people in his time in human history. 
It wasn't an easy thing to do. We just think, well, he had the power, just came in and do it. People had power. They were invested in evil. Their empires were invested in evil. They're making money hand and fist over this. People were as bad uh, in those days, gangs, mafia, whatever you, you know, in terms of what the ancient equivalent of it, that knew how to make money, knew how to protect it, knew how to make money off of religion and protect it, all that stuff. And he steps in and he says, all of it goes if it doesn't match the word of God. I want to see Hezekiah on the next presidential ballot. I'll tell you, we don't have to wait. Something better than that's coming. The Lord Jesus himself coming back on a white horse. He's going to establish his kingdom in this world and he's going to set up his thousand year reign and he's going to rule with a rod of righteousness. Everything that violates God's nature and his word, it will be completely undone in very swift order. And then we'll see what this world, the beauty of it and how it prospers just through simple obedience to the word of God. It won't be like a, a uh, witness of God limited to one nation in the Middle East. The whole world will testify to the wisdom of God's word at that time. But he came in and I mean, and sometimes we want to be great for God. You know, we want to uh, have a name that's gold in terms of of a reputation for the things of the Lord. And but I tell you, if if any of us are going to have it living in an evil era, it's going to mean removing. It's going to mean breaking. It's going to mean cutting down. It's going to mean burning bridges to evil as it relates to our sphere of influence. And so this is what he does. And further, he went and broke in pieces. Talk about having no respect uh, for, you know, history or this kind of thing. And I say it in a good way. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it. And Hezekiah uh, named it Nehushtan, a thing of brass. Back in the book of Numbers... When the children of Israel were complaining, the Bible says, against God, and they were complaining about Moses again, the Bible says that God sent serpents among the people, and they were bitten by those serpents, and they began to die. And they repented pretty quick, and they went to Moses and said, Time out, we're sorry about what we've done here and all. Uh, what can we do? And, the Lord, and Moses approached the Lord and said, Is there anything that can bring this judgment off of the people? And he said, Yes, make a fiery uh, serpent out of bronze, put it on the end of a pole, and put it in the middle of the camp. And when somebody's bitten by one of those poisonous snakes, they can look by faith to that uh, fiery serpent. And if they look in faith... For the salvation that they need, then they will be healed. And so when people would be bitten, they would look and they would be healed. And God used this instrument in their history. And all of it was a picture. As Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, all of it's a picture of Christ who came into the world, as, as Jesus spoke of himself, the world having been bitten by a worse serpent than some asp. We've been bitten by the serpent of the devil related to sin. But we're able to look in faith to the cross, the salvation that God has provided, and we are delivered from the death that our sin would bring to us. And so this great... Um, a relic uh, from their past, hundreds of years ago in their past, it had survived, 
But now they had set it up and they were worshiping as, as an idol. And here is Hezekiah. He comes in and he renames it Nehushtan, a thing of brass. This isn't anything. This is just a piece of metal. Don't worship it. So they're worshiping the event associated with God hundreds of years earlier, but they ceased to worship the God himself. They had no current relationship with God. Before Hezekiah, they're engaged in uh, wickedness, disobedience to the Lord, but they figured they were okay as long as they were honoring some memory from their past of when God did work in their lives. And that somehow that would, you know, undo the current wicked state of their lives. It's like a person today who is... Um, uh, living a life of wickedness or is backslidden and disobedient. But they look back to some time where God did a miracle in their life and they assume that because God did that miracle way back when, that they're all right with God now. And they've turned that event into an idol where they're worshiping the event rather than staying current in their relationship with God right now. And so the same kind of thing goes on to this day. He comes in and says, it's just a thing of brass. Why are you worshiping a molded piece of metal when you can be worshiping the true and the living God in spirit uh, and in truth? And so he uh, it breaks through. And I mean, again, you th if you think it was hard to remove the high places, break the sacred pillars, cut down uh, the wooden image, man, he probably took virtually uh, uh, respect. Uh, uh, I'll have it in a moment. Uh, comparatively, uh, much, very light heat for what he did when he got rid of this thing of brass. And why was he able to do all of these things he did? Here's a man of convictions. This is the guy. This is not a politician. I'm not putting down all politicians because there are some good ones in there. But, uh, but here's a guy that doesn't come in and say, all right, I've got this power, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about that, and, I'm th and then here, and if I do this, it'll have this consequence, and then if I do, and, th and he weighs the whole, and everything, and he's got his little yellow pad, and he's putting it on both sides, and the whole deal. It's not like that with Hezekiah. The Word of God's fire in his bones. This is the standard. This is what we're going to do, and we're going to find out what God will do as we do it. And we need those kind of men and women, not out in the world today. We need them in the body of Christ. Like Ravenhill said, where's the prophet who will move the prophets? These are the kind of men and women that are needed today. Where God's word says this, this is what it is, that's the bottom line, we're going to do it. Instead of worrying about what everybody thinks and everybody feels and, and we've got to have a group hug to accomplish anything, you come in and just obey the word of God at the risk of being misunderstood. And why did he do this? He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. And then here's, here is the reason for his success in his reign. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. It was so simple. The book was just he had the book just like we have the book on a daily basis, just opened it up and looked at it and said, all right, Lord, what do I do here in this fork in the road? What does your word say? Ah, I see what it says. And I do that. And that's what he did. 
Why did he do it? We're told there at the beginning of verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. It's the same word that's used in the book of Genesis that describes um, the husband and the wife uh, becoming one and in and, and, and marriage. And, and the, the word that is used there in the Hebrew, it speaks about a unifying, a welding, a gluing. I don't know, probably got a lot better glues these days, but I remember when I did a little bit of woodwork, they had a wood called uh, a glue called weld wood. And once you weld the two pieces of wood together with that, there were only to separate. You could the only way you could separate those two pieces of wood would be to do enormous damage to both of them. Or if you weld two pieces of metal together, the only way you can break that weld uh, short of, of using heat is to do great damage to the two pieces of metal. And it's a picture of, of marriage and, and the, the tearing apart of a marriage. That's the same word that's used here. He was welded to the Lord. Translation, there was nothing in his life that he allowed to get between him and the Lord. That's what his obedience came out of. It came out of that kind of a relationship with God. No other relationship, no person, no place, no thing was more important to him than his relationship with the Lord. He never allowed anything else to become a greater influence in his life than the Lord himself. And it's beautiful to see these little snippets of what were the keys to their spiritual dynamic and their legacy. And the Lord was with him. He prospered everywhere he went. Here are the consequences of, of obeying the Lord, the blessings of it. The Lord prospered him wherever he went. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So he broke off from freedom from Assyria's influence. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So victory over his enemies. Now, it came to pass uh, in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. Now we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel again. You say, why would he put this uh, a brief recap of the fall of Israel here? He's putting it here because he's contrasting the prosperity of Judah uh, that was occurring because of simple obedience to the word of God and then the destruction of Samaria, northern kingdom of Israel, because of their disobedience. It's not some big complicated thing. You don't have to get a decree at Cal to understand it. It's it, it, it just obedience and it's just disobedience. That's all that it is. So uh, he came up against Samaria, he besieged it, and at the end of three years, they took it in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken, and then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in uh, Hala and by, and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, in the cities of of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed. And transgression is deliberate disobedience. They deliberately disobeyed his covenant and all that the Moses, the servant of the Lord, he commanded. And they would neither hear nor do them. It wasn't that they couldn't. It was that the, an act of their will. They refused to listen to God's word. 
or even to do them. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, so he's been reigning now for a while, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he then now comes uh, against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. So this is a guy that's enlarging his empire, the Assyrian empire. He's taken Israel, and now he decides he's going to do a foray into Judah and take it as well. So he took several of of the fortified cities, cities that were difficult to take. And so Hezekiah, the king of Judah, he sent a message to the king of Assyria at Lachish, and he said, I've done wrong uh, in breaking away from you and, and, and not uh, honoring you, and so uh, whatever you impose on me, I will pay. Give me, instead of attacking us and defeating Jerusalem and, and taking Judah, give me the terms uh, of of peace here. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. This is what it'll cost. That's uh, 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 11, 11 tons of, of uh, silver and, uh, and, and then uh, 30 talents of gold. So one ton of gold. This was what he said will bring peace. And so Hezekiah gave him, he doesn't have any gold or silver on hand in that kind of quantity, so he gave him all of the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And the, Hezekiah went so far as to strip the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord. I mean, this, he, this had to bother him. And from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave all of it to the king of Israel. Now, this occurs 14 years into uh, his reign, and uh, he knows better. He has a better relationship with God than, uh, than to do what he does here. And there's no mention of prayer when he's attacked at this point. And uh, so he makes a mistake here in, in uh, all of this. And, um, and, and you know he should have resisted and and all, but but he didn't. And and uh, but he's going to learn a lesson from it. And that's one of the great things about Hezekiah. Doesn't mean he was perfect every single time, but he loved the Lord. And uh, and and uh, this trial is just a huge trial. You got to put yourself in Hezekiah's place. He's being attacked by the world ruling empire at the time. And he looks and he's making decisions now that are going to affect everyone. They're not just going to affect uh, his wife, his children. It's going to affect uh, whether people live and die uh, by the hundreds and thousands in and around Jerusalem. He's got the buck stops there. He's got to make that decision. What am I going to do? Assyria was by far the largest up to that time, the largest army that had ever been assembled in that part of the world. I mean, it was it was fearsome to take on Assyria. So he's got the lives of all of these people in his hands, so to speak. And so he crumbles here a little bit. And uh, it wasn't worthy of him, but he will learn and uh, learn very, very well. And and God is going to use it to make him uh, even better for greater problems that are going to come in his future. I'm so thankful for God's grace. You know, when you just fumble and fumble pretty bad, you say, man, I didn't even pray there. I wonder why it turned into that. And the Lord walks us back and says, all right, this is what needs to happen now when this happens in your life. And you got you, Lord. Thank you so much. And he's he really is so wonderful uh, in his grace that he doesn't give up on us and his call on our lives in 
in just one failure. And so they've paid all of this money to the king of Assyria. And what does that do to wicked men or to a a man like uh, Sennacherib, who was over Assyria, just makes them hungry for more? So they look, wow, this guy can come up with 10 tons of silver and one ton of gold that fast. What kind of silver and gold must must they have hidden elsewhere in the city? And so he, the king of Assyria, sent the Tartan and the uh, Rebsaris and the Rebeksha. These are all titles of kind of official titles of, of whether in the military or in the civil government they, uh, they had. They were sent from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. So this great army of the Assyrians shows up on their doorstep and they went up and they came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they went and they stood by the aqueduct of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the fuller's field. And so this is where this meeting occurred. And when they called to the king, wanting to meet with Hezekiah, but Hezekiah didn't meet with him. He sent out three of his officials as well. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household. Uh, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. They came out to meet these Assyrian officials. And then the Rebeksha uh, said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. So it's interesting to watch this whole thing that unfolds here in just a moment is not only did Assyria have the greatest army at that time in the ancient world, I mean, a frightening army to come up against, but they were masters at psychological warfare. And just intimidating, even without a battle, how to beat down, introduce fear into the hearts and minds of their enemies, make them forget about God, forget about their God, God's promises. They were able, you know, if you ever watched The Wizard of Oz, you know, it was like they were able to make Sennacherib like this gigantic thing instead of this little man at the controls, you know, behind the screen. And uh, so they they really knew how to do all of this stuff. And so they're uh, they had it down. And so they come in and, and deliver the message. Now, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now, look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Now, Judah, the Philistines, Uh, The Egyptians, several other nations, small nation states had united together to form a confederation to resist Assyria taking over that part of the Middle East. The Assyrians have conquered everyone but Egypt and Judah. So now the Rebekah, he is mocking uh, Judah's trust in Egypt and saying they're they're, they are the staff of a broken reed. In other words, the moment you put any weight on Egypt to try and help you out, it's going to snap under the the weight of uh, of you. And then he mocks then their trust in the Lord. It's one thing to mock Egypt. It's another thing to trust God. We'll see. We won't get to it tonight. But we'll see that God was listening to all of this. You ever have someone just get in your face and just mock you up one side and down the other? And, and I, always, I always think I try um, 
I try to control my temper, and then I, I, uh, I say to the Lord, one of the passages that always comes into my mind is from the book of Proverbs, where it says, you know, don't answer a fool according to, uh, to his folly. So um, just be quiet and let someone else beat him up further down the road. It's basically how I think about it. And uh, now that I'm older, I really don't want to get beaten up either. But anyway, so uh, so but it's the thing of it is, is is when you when you get hit like that or somebody doesn't, you know, just some kind of a thing, a mocking and a scorning to realize that God hears all of that. And the Lord is our defender. And if we will let him defend us in our innocence or our well intentions and what we've been involved in. He is very, very good at defending us. We don't need to defend ourselves. And so he moves now to mocking the Lord. But if you say we trust in the Lord, our God is not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah in Jerusalem, you shall worship before the uh, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. In other words, they had heard that he had cleansed the land of idolatry. So word had gotten out on that. And they said, listen, if you think the Lord is is happy with you, he's not happy because Hezekiah has just removed all of his altars. I you just you just hate it when people speak for God when they don't know what they're talking about. But that's what he's doing here. And now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. How, will, how then will you repel one captive of the, captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? In other words, we will... We will uh, give you 2,000 horses for cavalry, we will send out our very worst military commander, and we will still beat you in battle. So this is a guy, I don't like these kind of people, candidly, in life. So, but this is the kind of bluster that he has. He says, how have I, have I come up now without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So now he's telling them that the Lord has sent me up to defeat you. And that and now he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Probably one of the most powerful things that we have to be careful of as it relates to fear, because he's trying to um, uh, eliminate their confidence in God is when somebody says, thus saith the Lord, and they bring some kind of a message like this that puts fear in our hearts when we know we're walking right with the Lord. Fear is a very, very powerful uh, weapon in the hands of the enemy. And so he comes in and he tries to say to them, how do you know that your God hasn't sent us to judge you? And remember, God had sent them to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. So it wasn't so inconceivable that God would send the Assyrians to judge Judah because of their past sin. So this guy's got, I mean, he's got the whole psychological thing all worked out for trying to put fear in people's hearts. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rebshekah, uh, Rebshekah, 
please speak to your servants in Aramaic. Apparently he was speaking in Hebrew, for we understand Aramaic and and don't speak in the Hebrew because then all of the people that are on the walls listening to our conversation can hear what we're saying. And so they're trying to keep them from hearing what what is putting fear in their hearts and they don't want people to be disheartened uh, in the city. But the Rebbeksha said to them, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Oh, boy. So he wasn't uh, very respectful on things. You guys are going to not only are you going to die of starvation as a result of the siege, you're going to be amazed at what you'll put into your bodies at the end of all this. And then the Rebeksha stood and he called out in a loud voice in Hebrew and he spoke saying, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from uh, from his hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. So he is casting doubt in the minds of the people upon Hezekiah's leadership. Uh, they, he's, he's getting them, trying to get them to doubt their trust in the Lord. And he said further, verse 31, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. Every one of you eat from his own vine and from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and I take you away to a land like your own a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. So he calls on them to surrender and says, listen, at least you won't die. We will put you and they already knew about a serious policy of displacing populations. We'll move you into a land somewhere else in the empire that's just as good as your land and you'll be just as happy. One big problem. You won't be free. And you won't be in the part of the world that God wanted you to be as a witness for him. And so this is the promise that he's giving that, you know, will they make a stand or not make a stand? Will it be peace at any price? He said, but do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim and Hena and uh, Iva? Indeed, they have they delivered Samaria in my hand, uh, from my hand, they worshipped all of these gods in Israel and we still conquered them. Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people held their peace and they answered not a word for the king's commandment was do not answer him. And so they responded in silence. Now, Sennacherib makes a big mistake here in the latter part of verse 35 where he says, and again, verse 35, who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. And the Lord is in all caps. He's talking about Yahweh here, Jehovah here. So now he is putting the God of the Bible 
on a level of all of these other false gods. And God's listening to this conversation. And God is going to take care of this man and going to take care of his army in a very, very dramatic way to let this man know that the God of the Bible is not some territorial God or something that's been made up in the minds of men and women and fashioned into a God, but that he is God over all of the world and over all of creation. And so God is listening to, <coughs> excuse me, all of this. And now he's gone to blaspheming the Lord. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they came to Hezekiah. When they got to Hezekiah, their clothes were torn. And they then reported to him the message that had been given through the Rebeksha. And so they delivered it. They came into his presence with clothing that had been torn. And to tear your clothes in the ancient world was a symbol of that you had received some news that had torn your heart and had broken your heart. And so they came in. Their heart was absolutely torn by the 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 uh, blasphemy that had been directed toward their God, uh, but also uh, at at. Uh, uh, the threats that they had made against the southern kingdom of Judah. Pick things up in chapter 19 next week. <clears throat> and as we get into chapter 19, <clears throat> one of the real mountaintop chapters uh, in the entire Old Testament, which really details how to deal with this kind of a trial. So here you've got a situation. We're going to find out very shortly that the army that is surrounding Jerusalem at that time is at least 185,000 of the most feared military in the world at that time. The most sophisticated weaponry, very, very experienced. I mean, they are, Hezekiah is in the trial of his life. I mean, the bottom has fallen out of his life in terms of what he's looking at. And this chapter gives us a wonderful picture on how to handle those kind of circumstances in our life, because we all face those circumstances in our lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you that it never returns void, but that it is alive, it is active, it is powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword, and that, Lord, as we study it, it is doing a needed work in the totality of our lives, our spirit, and our mind, and our heart, and our body, sanctifying them, Lord, and bringing your perspective to bear upon our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to study these chapters this evening. Lord, we thank you tonight as the theme of obedience continues to be so strong. We want you to know that we consider it a privilege to have your instruction, to have your word and your mind in your word and the privilege of being able to obey your word and then to enjoy the abundant life that unfolds as a result of it. Lord, we thank you for just the privilege of being your sons and your daughters and to thank you for the privilege of being under your instruction and under your wisdom, Lord. We love the life that we get to live. Thank you, Lord, 
for your instruction to lead us into it. And we thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.